What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Just Another Book Club podcast. On the episode today, we have a very special guest, Professor Margaret Jacob from UCLA. She's going to be talking about her book, The Secular Enlightenment. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Joining the show today is esteemed historian of the Enlightenment and author of numerous books and other publications, including The Secular Enlightenment, Professor Margaret Jacob. Professor, thank you so much for being on today. And I want to tell you just a quick story about the book. I first read it in the summer of 2019. I was researching and getting ready uh, for my senior thesis on kind of like the origins of secularism. At that point, I still didn't quite know where I wanted to go. And I had just finished reading Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, at least the first half of it. It's a tough book. Oh, reading this book after that was such a breath of fresh air <laughs> because it didn't take three hours to get through one page, which was not a philosopher. And... Right. It was, it was a sludge to get through Taylor's book. But this one, it seemed like it had more of a popular audience in mind. And so I wanted to just start off asking, was that a conscious choice? Um, or is it just maybe something like your writing style or something else? Well, he, he is a philosopher, and there are different standards um, to which philosophers are held versus historians who are a lesser breed <laughs> in terms of prose, perhaps. I try to write for a general audience and hope that my books will be read by whomever, but also that they can be read by uh, students in universities. So that might be something of what makes the difference. I don't know. Right. Well, even though it was um, maybe a little easier to read, I still think the arguments were profound and deep. And I thought there were two main arguments in the book, at least that I saw. One was, first, the Enlightenment was secular, right? Which I think maybe, at least recently, there might be some pushback against that, that the Enlightenment was religious. So I saw the book, first of all, trying to argue against those people saying, no, 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 the Enlightenment maybe not was irreligious, but it certainly was moving away from this predominant religious culture. Exactly. I'm not saying that um, the Enlightenment signals the end of religion, far, far from it. But I am saying that it opened a space in the human mind where ordinary, everyday things of this world could be taken seriously, examined, and possibly even become ends in and of themselves. I'm saying that, grosso modo, in the course of the 18th century, it became easier for people to not go to church or spend Sunday reading the newspaper rather than going. Um, that people worried less about the salvation of their souls and more about their social and economic well-being and the well-being of their children also. I think religious education becomes less important in the course of this century. We've had examples of French historians who have gone through last wills and testaments in the course of the 18th century and discovered that in the second half of the century, there's a falling off of leaving money and property to churches. 
And again, that's something that suggests a secularization, a, a concern with things other than the salvation of one's soul in a church, perhaps. Interesting. I, I'll talk about what I think the second argument is in a second, but I want to play off of that. Do you think this process really gets going in the Enlightenment, or does it start earlier, maybe um, in the 17th century? I think it starts earlier in the last quarter of the 17th century. And it's um, partly the result of the reappearance of religious bigotry in Europe. One thing in particular, the persecution of French Protestants, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1785, which suddenly made French Protestants illegal. And you had various choices. You could convert to Catholicism. You could try to get out of the country, but that wasn't legal. You had to basically flee. And there were people who, for example, fled and had to leave their children behind because they couldn't guarantee safe passage for them. That uh, crisis in French religion sets off a crisis throughout Protestant Europe, in England, in the Dutch Republic, in Germany. Suddenly, the, the um, horrors of the 16th century, where religion was a subject for open warfare, suddenly these horrors seem to come back. And I think that, that creates, a, a, in and of itself, a, a crisis that is, is larger than simply um, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Although the, the French Huguenots, the French Protestants, are the candidates the people that people see as objects of persecution and many of them some of them were hand workers and quite ordinary people others were intellectuals writers journalists and of course they went off to london or amsterdam or the hague or berlin and they took up their pens and they did for the purpose of pointing out to everybody who could read french that the king and the church of France had persecuted them. Right. Well, that's one of the most interesting things I found in the book was it was the cities, it was these urban areas, right? That attracted not just some of the great minds we think of like Voltaire um, or Hobbes and others, um, but it's almost like they needed this, well, I guess we can call it public spaces like you did in the, or public spheres. Yes. In order for these ideas um, not just to stay localized, but to grow and to fester and to really go out into the public and become, I won't say normal, but more popular. Yes, I've given a fair bit of thought to just how big does a city have to be Mm -hmm. for to provide that shelter. And I've sort of come to the conclusion that a a population around 25 to 30,000 is what is what's needed to create a big enough um, urban density that you you get uh, bookshops and cafes and uh, hurly burly coming and going where if somebody wants to get lost can get lost. Right. Yeah. Um, let me let's back up because the word secular itself. Before we get too far into this, I want to just make sure we have a clear definition for everyone listening. Because secularism and, and secularization is more than just the separation of church and state, right? Yes. There's, it's almost like you're saying like this space. It's almost hard to define. It's the space where, to put it in Taylor's language, religion and belief in a deity or belief in the transcendent becomes an option among many. 
I don't know if you agree with, with that statement or not. Yes, I do. Um, another way of thinking about the secular is, is that it, it is a focus on earthly time. Mm -hmm. That time, and I, it's not accidental that I begin the book by talking about the expansion of time and the expansion of space that occurs in the 17th century, partly as the result of the new science and partly as a result of the technology of clockmaking and eventually watchmaking, where time becomes something that expands but can also be internalized, measured, uh, kept close to oneself. So, for example, if you go through diaries in the 18th century, let's say around 1700, most people who write in their diaries say, uh, in the morning I went so-and-so, and in the afternoon I did this. And in the evening, we played cards. By this middle of the 18th century, you have people saying, I had coffee at 8 a.m. And my friends came to talk at 10 a.m. And then at noon, I went riding. And at 2 o'clock, we had tea. And so you get, begin to get a precision about time that's possible only with a timepiece. Yeah. You know, something that tells you what's happening. It's interesting because you talked about how this kind of erodes the Christian conception of time. And you talk about calendars and how no longer is time referenced to like saints. And I was even thinking, you, you, I think you touch on it in the book, how a Christian conception of time is more than just linear. And now all of a sudden time is pretty much strictly a linear process. Right. Right. Remember the Christian understanding of time set the notion that, Time began at a very specific moment when God created the world. And there were elaborate um, exercises published by very learned people who tried to actually pin the date down. And um, in England, Archbishop Usher decided that, that the world began around, I think it was 6006 B.C., and then, of course, we know in the Bible, it says that time is going to end. Mm -hmm. And in Protestant Europe, it became a subject of considerable research and thinking. Well, when is time going to end? And uh, particularly among people who wanted to change the way things were, who wanted reform and even radical transformation, they came to the conclusion that, ah, time's going to end when this change really occurs. And this will be when Christ comes again and institutes a millennium, yeah. a time where the saints are called to be with Christ. Mm -hmm. And millenarianism is very much a Protestant phenomenon in the 17th and 18th centuries, which by the end of the 18th century disappears from high culture. You can still find it in popular culture to today. You can still find it, but, it becomes something that educated people no longer take very seriously. Right. And space itself also goes through a radical change at this point, right? With just yes. expansion of colonialism and imperialism changes how Western minds thought about things. Indeed. Indeed. I mean, the, the, I always tell my students that um, there are two extraordinary transformations that everybody in the 17th and the 18th centuries had to come to terms with. One was the discovery 
of all the peoples of the world, especially the new peoples, the peoples of the new world. That was a shock. Mm-hmm. And the other is the, the, the realization from the new science in particular that space could be much larger than anyone had imagined. And it's neutral. It's nothing. It's just a place, just as time is duration. And this um, taking the clutter out of time and space, if you want to use that metaphor, is part of this process of secularization. Right. It's interesting because I read, um, it's a book by Kenneth Shepard called Anti-Atheism in Early Modern England. Uh Uh-huh. And he talks about how a couple different things, Um, but one is how these anti-atheists in England were trying to argue that the discovery of these brand new religions, these brand new cultures actually demonstrated that there's this universal truth to the world and and, uh, God must be behind all of it. Right. But then Mm -hmm. Shifts is like, well, now all of a sudden these, um, once she gets later into um, the 16th century, about 1720, we start to see authors trying to shift the argument away from atheists are bad to atheists are good people. Mm-hmm. I think something you also kind of demonstrate in your book, especially with like um, when Spinozism becomes popular. Yes. An atheist isn't a bad thing in the 18th century. Atheists can also be good people. Well, to the majority of people in Europe, it was still a bad thing, atheism. But you do begin to get people arguing, well, Pierre Bale most famously says that, well, yes, there's atheism, but you know, an atheist could be a good person. And that was seen as really beyond the pale as an argument. Mm -hmm. And the most outrageous text of the 18th century, and it was a century given to outrageous texts, The most outrageous is a work called the Treatise on the Three Impostures, the Traité des Trois Impostures. And that text, which was anonymous, we still are not absolutely sure who wrote it. In fact, I've argued that it was written by a small group. It argued that Jesus, Moses, and Mohammed were the three great impostors. And when I teach that text, I always have to say to my students, look, this, these people were equal opportunity offenders. You know, you're going to be offended when I tell you what they said. But that, that was really beyond the pale. That was, that was about as far as you could go in the 18th century or any century. Okay. You talk about materialism a little bit. How much did the rise in materialism or Epicureanism really kind of drive this new Newtonian science? Well, Newton himself was no materialist, quite the reverse. You know, he, he would have no truck with that. He was a deeply devout, although heretical, Christian. Um, where, where to begin with? Um, uh, rephrase that. Let me, let me think that through again. Sure. So I've read in other works that secularism uh, type of, you know, foundation in the resurgence of materialism with the Hobbes, but even further back uh, to Epicureanism and Epicurus and his uh, materialism or hedonism. Yes. You talk a little bit with that, especially in the chapter about the Dutch. Well, if you, if you look for the philosophical foundations of materialism, they grow out of the mechanical philosophy. Okay. 
once you conceive of nature as that all change in motion that occurs in nature occurs because of contact action between bodies. That's it. No contact action, no motion, no change. Mm -hmm. And that therefore the collision of matter, the action of matter upon matter is the key to change and motion in nature. Mm -hmm. Then the issue becomes where does that, where does that energy come from? Now, Christian thinkers would say that that energy comes ultimately from God. It is an immaterial force. That's what Newton believed, for example. Mm-hmm. But it's not rocket science to go ahead and argue that the impetus comes from within nature itself. In effect, Descartes argues that, and Spinoza argues it. And Newton was horrified by this. But you remember Newton argued that that the action of gravity, and, and let me just get a little technical here for a minute. The action of universal gravity is between bodies, the center of bodies. It's where the force of gravity comes from. Right. Well, a free thinker like Toland argued that, therefore, motion is inherent in matter. Right. If gravity comes from the center of the body, then motion is in that body. And it was possible to use Newton's science, even though it horrified him, to say that all there is is matter in motion. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. Can I shift to what I think the second argument is? Sure. And this this might be the the kind of last topic we talk about before I let you go. (laughs) The Enlightenment values, I think, especially, and this is maybe you disagree with Taylor here and others. I think the Enlightenment and its values have come under attack recently uh, by Taylor, maybe Brad Gregory and, and others. Whereas I read this book as a defense of Enlightenment values, not all of them, because you certainly talk about the complicated uh, history with um, maybe not Montesquieu, but, but all the others with racism and yeah. uh, sexism. But overall, it seems like you're arguing the Enlightenment pushed us forward and we're not going back and we shouldn't go back. Right. Yes, I am arguing that. And I'm saying that the philosophes, um, Voltaire, Diderot, um, Hume, uh, there's a long list of these people and not just big names, some small unknown names, wanted people to think about the way society made people feel the old regime, the old order said that, that your worth, your value um, came from your birth, your religion, your literacy, your dress, your smell, whatever religion you had or didn't have. And there was this strict hierarchy of peoples depending upon those things. Sure. What the Enlightenment is saying is, Everybody is basically the same. And there's no reason to discriminate against people because of their birth or their religion or their smell or their literacy, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that is an incredible step forward. And it's one that we still have to keep. And we, we still have to speak about universal human rights. Yeah. That notion is laid down in the Enlightenment. Right. 
And just, I think just a, a really great piece of evidence at the end of the book where you talk about these places that maybe not wholesale rejected the Enlightenment, but where the Enlightenment values started to fade away, like in Germany or in Italy, mm-hmm. started to see uh, these political movements towards Nazism, towards fascism. And I think even in America, the Enlightenment has been challenged. And we, we see what's going on the last four years. So there, there, yeah. is, there is like a correlation between places that had a stronger sense of Enlightenment values to places that didn't and the political systems that gave rise in those countries at certain periods of time. Indeed. Now we're once again in this country seeing the reappearance in a major political party mm-hmm. of anti-Semitism. Right. Think about that. It's mind boggling, mm-hmm. but here it is. It's, it's right out there. Yeah. And, and it flies against everything that the enlightenment came to value. So maybe what we need is uh, the American Immanuel Kant or something. <laughs> right. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> okay, Professor, thank you so much again for coming on. Uh, do you want to let everyone know where they can buy your book? They can buy it on Amazon or they can buy it from Princeton University Press. Um, I welcome all, all readers. That would be wonderful. Perfect. I have one of the uh, best things about the book is you don't have to be a learned historian to enjoy it or even understand what's going on. Well, that's very, that's very kind. Thank you. Again, a huge thank you to Professor Margaret Jacob for coming on and talking about her book, The Secular Enlightenment. Go out, grab a copy, read it. You'll be thankful you did. Until next time, thanks for listening.